Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and actor. And I'm Caroline Zita, a film and TV critic for the AV Club. And today, we are joined by a very special guest. I will do her intro, which I've made up. She's an actor who has appeared on several episodes of Chicago Med as Nurse Susie. She performed motion capture for the video game Mortal Kombat 11 as Katana, the ruler of Earthrealm. And we've referenced her many, many times in this podcast because she is my life partner and uh, always in the other room. And her name is also Emily. Please welcome Miss Emily Marceau. <laughs> Hello. I'm so pleased to be here. Emily, we're the thrilled second... to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Second build Emily on the podcast. Just a pleasure to be nominated. So No, not um, today you're not. Oh, wow. You're Emily number one. Ooh, Sorry, Emily Blunt. Bring step me up aside. The call sheet. <laughs> um. Thank you so much for writing me a bio, Ned. Ned asked me earlier today, he's like, do you want to like prepare your own bio? Do you want me to, you know, write something? And I was like, ah, just write something. It's fine. You, um, you made it seem as if that would be a torturous exercise for oh, you. Oh, yeah. I mean, no doubt that would have sucked. But I will just say for any Mortal Kombat fanboys listening, um, I'm pretty sure Katana is not the ruler of Earthrealm. I'm pretty sure no? she's a con of Outworld. And maybe like the Queen of Adenia. I forget. There's a lot of realms, but Wow, I just, I just for all lost of the, all our Mortal Kombat fans. <laughs> for all the for all the people following along at home who are deep into the Mortal Kombat lore, please don't slide into my DMs to tell me I'm a bad ruler of wherever I'm supposed to rule. So Nice. Yeah. Okay, well this actually sort of worked to establish your bona fides. Uh yeah. And to establish that I am a chump, which uh, <laughs> to just uh, reinforce that, which we all already knew. Happy to help. So the way that this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns creating a five-film miniseries featuring an actor we love, and today brings us to the final episode of our Emily Blunt arc. Uh, so, Emily Marceau? Yeah. Which I think we'll just call you Emily from now on, it's... and she's going to be Emily Blunt. Wow. Thank you. Do you have any sort of general Emily Blunt thoughts before we get uh, movie-specific? Um. Okay. Let's see. Do I have any general thoughts? I mean, I honestly... When you were telling me that you guys were going to do Emily Blunt, I really – you can name, like, a lot of the frontrunner movies that she's done. And then I was, like, really struggling to think about what else she's been in. Like, I feel like she is an incredibly solid performer who, like, has never really hit, like, a serious wrong note. Or she's an incredibly savvy Hollywood master in the sense that she has just, like, somehow hidden away all of the movies that have not gone well from public notice. Like, I feel like she's been in more than three movies. Like, that must be true, canonically speaking. And yet somehow I can only name, like, three of them. So my my feeling on her is sort of the same feeling I have on Taylor Swift, which is, like, love the, love the oeuvre, uh, love the like, the, like, backlog, and then, like, just, like, an intensely savvy marketer of her career. Like, extremely good at shaping the narrative around herself. I am so glad you brought that up because – I was kind of going into this. I was like, okay, we're, we're wrapping up our Emily Blunt series, which I feel like went very quickly. Like, I feel like we just started it. And I was like, okay, what are my big picture takeaways on Emily Blunt? And it is kind of hard to figure out exactly, like, what space she occupies in our pop culture. I feel like everybody pretty much loves her. Like, she doesn't seem to be a person that gets a lot of, like, oh, I'm sick of her. I'm frustrated by her. But, like, she's 
And I think she's well-respected as an actor, but, like, she's never been nominated for an Oscar, so she's not quite operating in that prestige level. And I guess she has done a lot of blockbuster stuff, but I don't know if that's where I would exactly think of her either. Like, I can't I can't quite think of other equivalent actors that occupy the same space she does. She feels very unique to me. Yeah, and it's been very fun to sort of go into these performances. I would say that it's been kind of cool because picking her... I thought, yeah, she's totally she's totally sturdy, but I I hadn't really thought about her career in the same way that when we were doing Christian Bale for our first arc, it felt like we were treading what was very familiar ground to me, and I I keep feeling during the Emily Blunt series like I'm having these moments of, oh, you know, I I never really thought about how what she's doing here sort of refracts the light upon what she's doing in this other one. Mhm. Yeah, she she doesn't feel like she has as uh, as clear a conspicuous public image. She just kind of keeps turning in these solid performances, and yet it does kind of seem as though she can take her pick. Like I can't imagine. Well, I don't know. I don't know what she wants. <laughs> I was about to say I can't imagine she's dissatisfied with her career. It seems like she has, you know, her pick of some really appealing projects, but maybe she wants. The stars and the moon. I don't know. We'll have know. to see. I mean, certainly it feels like she's a long future ahead of her. Like, I feel like easily in another five years, we could come back and, you know, who knows where her career will be. And we could do a whole second miniseries on her. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to when Roll Calling gets to revisit an actor. The fi- Our first five more. That'll, yeah. that'll be fun. So with our Emily Blunt retrospective so far, here's what we've done. We've pitched heels first into an overwhelming new job in The Devil Wears Prada. We fought murderous aliens in A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place Part 2. We've kept our heads with machine guns blazing in Sicario. And we've saved the day by turning back time in Mary Poppins Returns. And our final Emily Blunt episode, we will discuss a film that I would believe does all of those things. <laughs> it's 2014's Edge of Tomorrow. Dang, you pulled that together, Ned. That was an impressive weaving of... Like, yeah, it's one of those games of like, how can you connect Mary Poppins Returns to uh, Sicario? It was something about watching the opening shots of Edge of Tomorrow with the meteor coming in towards Earth. And I was like, wow, where have I just seen this two yeah. weeks ago? You know what's funny? When we did our quiet, our first Quiet Place episode, you referred to them as aliens. And I was like, oh, I only ever would have called them monsters. And then we saw the second one, and they were absolutely confirmed to be aliens. And I was like, wow, Ned was right. And then again, watching this movie, I was like, really? That is a big part of Emily Blunt's career is just fighting evil aliens. Yes. And also... Um, trying to alter future events in the Adjustment Bureau and Lupin. Yeah, wow. Yeah, she is kind of more of a sci-fi action-y person, I guess, than I had maybe been thinking of, which I guess stems a lot from, from this movie being a turning point there. Yeah, and this was a big one. So who had seen this previously? I had. Both I had, yeah. We all had. Yeah. We're, sci- we're geeks, Emily- we're sci-fi <laughs> aficionados. None of us let this one go by us. Emily, what's your Edge of Tomorrow story? Yeah, I mean, you know, because you live with me and you know that this is like, um, like you know, when Jimmy Kimmel and uh, like, you know, Jennifer Lawrence sit down and it's like, oh, oh my God. So I heard you had the funniest story yeah. and they're just like riffing. <laughs> like they're just like two best friends who thought of this and not like Jennifer Lawrence's PR team like faxed over a list of like stories Jennifer would be telling on the program. But yeah, Ned, that's so funny you brought that up. I actually do have the funniest story for Edge of Tomorrow. No, well, I, I am on your PR team. After all, so. 
Thank you for receiving my memo. Um, no, yeah, I had uh, – Ned had wanted to see our mutual friend Justin in a play that I had already seen him in. And so I was stuck in the suburbs of Chicago up in Skokie um, with – three hours to kill and nothing to do because it's Skokie and anyone who's ever been there has been like, wow, you must have been at ends. And so I was just like bumming around in the suburbs and I went to the movie theater and was like, I will see anything that is playing at this matinee time on Sunday. And the only thing that fit into the schedule was Edge of Tomorrow in 3D. And I hate movies in 3D. Uh, Sorry to all you 3D fans out there. I can't I don't like being told where to focus my attention. Please let me look at the background. I want it to be in focus. Um, so I was not excited about this at all. And this movie like rocked my shit. I came out of this movie and I was like, wow, this was such an ex- like an excellent hour and a half well spent. Why is no one talking about this movie? Why have I seen nothing about it? It absolutely just like cold cocked me because I had no conceptions going into it of what it was going to be other than Tom Cruise was in it. It had a bunch of white people. It was vaguely sepia toned. Like I had no expectations at all. And it was so lovely. I'm so jealous because I did not see this in a theater. And I wish I had because I feel like that only would have added to the experience. I think I just saw this. I think I rented it with my family. I don't, I must have just been home for something. And I, I think I knew that it already had a like a good sort of almost like a cult classic reputation. So I had I had high expectations and it very mm-hmm. much met them, but I, I'm very jealous of your experience of going in cold and also seeing it on the big screen. What about you, Ned? I think Emily showed it to me uh, just at home. I think we just put it up on the uh, on the projector that we have sometime after. I mean, for a long time, I had Emily sort of in my ear as this evangelist of Edge of Tomorrow <laughs> from an era when it didn't have that. And at this point... I'd say over the past few years, you know, it came out in 2014, seven years ago. You, you do tend to have this conversation a lot, which always starts with people saying, so have you ever heard of this movie, Edge of Tomorrow? You might know it as Live, Die, Repeat, but uh, it's this great, you know, it, it's still, as you say, Caroline, it feels a little like it just missed the mainstream, like it veered off from the mainstream somehow which which had to do i understand well we can we can get into exploring whether or not it had to do with its marketing campaign which is i believe sort of the common understanding of it but it didn't really make a splash at least in our community and yet in a way kind of like the movie john wick which was released and i assume treated like everyone treated by everyone like oh this is just another sort of generic revenge action with Keanu Reeves. And then one by one, you just start to hear people be like, no, 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 no. There's some really cool stuff going on with that. I think the same thing happened with Edge of Tomorrow. So I saw it a number of years ago, but yeah, I had I had Emily strongly encouraging me prior to then saying, no, 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 it's very cool. It's very cool. Have you heard the good word about Edge of Tomorrow? Knock, knock. Can it's I? me. <laughs> the Mormon for Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> Yes, Edge of Tomorrow's Witness is yeah. uh, Emily Marceau. And that's why I thought of you immediately for this episode. I mean, it, it the reputation- It's funny because I literally went- No, go ahead, Emily. I was just going to say, I, you know, when you first asked me, I was like, I don't know that I have much to say about this. And then as I remembered all of the like- backstory of this of this movie, I was like, oh, damn, I have so much, I have so many strong thoughts about the marketing campaigns for this, the like build up to this movie, the release of it and like the audience reaction to it, you know? 
Yeah. Well, I was wondering if we wanted to get into that because it is a weird one because it was like really well received critically. This It has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it was pretty universally acclaimed as a great action movie. And then for some reason, like you were both were saying, it just didn't quite connect. It makes, I think, like 300 and... 70 million worldwide which for some movies would be good but not for a movie that costs 178 million dollars to make and i think had you know probably much more than that spent on marketing and it is really weird that it just did just just one of those things that did not connect with people and i think stuff like this happening like movies like this not quite connecting is why a lot of times hollywood's like okay we can only do things based on properties that people have heard of before we can only remake things and it is such a shame that this didn't, I don't know, make a bigger splash when it debuted. And just to add to what you mentioned there, I, I'd seen it distinguished that it, it was considered a an international success, but a domestic failure, sure. that it just didn't connect with American audiences. And especially, too, I think, with somebody like Tom Cruise, who at his height just could do no wrong. Like, I think that that, that sets box office expectations so high and causes people to invest a lot in movies like this. Like, they cost more money than they would... If you had different stars and it does put a lot of pressure on them to recoup in a big way. Yeah. And they had said, you know, like a couple of Tom Cruise's movies right before this had not they were not expected to, you know, like they were under 100 million domestic, which for a Tom Cruise starred movie is like pretty much not great. And and internationally, though, Tom Cruise still had such like a sterling reputation, the action movie you know, the action hero thing was still so big. So they were, there was some expectation that it was not going to like hit in a big way. They'd revised down its opening night projections like a bunch of times and it came in at like 20 million. I can't remember what, oh, it was Fault in Our Stars. There was like some Which of the I like producers. I was part of the did problem. You, I was the problem. You did this. I don't know if yeah. It's a problem. All those young women yeah. wanting to watch that. Sad cancer story instead of I went and saw Emily Blunt the fighting our stars at like eleven p.m. and I was with our, our all of our mutual friend Casey and we just ended up at like one a.m. at the end of the movie just sobbing leaving a theater. Yeah, it's a very different yeah. theater going experience yeah. than why'd you go tomorrow? watch these teens die one time when you could have watched Tom Cruise die like a hundred wow. times. So true. Um, I feel uh, like now people are more into this movie, right? Like I feel like it's like we were saying people are it's kind of been rediscovered. And there is like people seem I feel like they keep teasing that maybe one day there'll be a sequel. But, you know, I feel like generally its reputation has grown a bit. Do we think the problem was the title? Because that's another big thing that they brought up that the director, Doug Lyman, really wanted it to be called Live, Die, Repeat. Now, when you go to rent it, it's literally called Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow. They've just fully retitled it, which I find very strange. Yes, I don't know of any other... I can't think of an analog in any other film. Yeah, they mentioned that it was when they set up, when they started the DVD marketing, it literally, if you look at a DVD cover, the quote unquote tagline, Live, Die, Repeat, is huge. And then Edge of Tomorrow is down at the bottom as if you've switched the title and the tagline. And yeah, I, I'd heard that it is it is actually listed on, on streaming services and and rental facilities as lived, I repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow. Personally, I like Edge of Tomorrow better as a title. I'm going to put it out there. Don't know if that's a hot take. I no, think it's I more mean, evocative. If it is, I'm willing to die on that hill with you because <laughs> I I have such strong feelings. I think, Ned, the like closest analog I can think of is Harley Quinn, the, yeah. the fabulous 
Oh God! Don't make me say oh, that whole right, title. Yeah. Birds of Prey: Fabulous Colon the Fantabulous Emancipation. Of one Harley Quinn, something like that. Exactly, and a film I deeply oh, wish had succeeded well, exactly. more in, in box office. But please well, totally. continue. And and this argument that like, oh, that film failed because nerds couldn't figure out that it was you know a Batman right. adjacent <laughs> movie. Like like video like moviegoers are so dumb they can't like put it together. Um. And it's crazy because you watch two films make arguments that are totally opposite each other. That this long title gets totally chopped to just be birds of prey and be like, oh, and that was the problem. And Edge of Tomorrow gets a colon and like a whole like 100% more words. And they're like, cool, that was the problem. It just wasn't right. (laughs) And like my main thought with that is like, (laughs) like (laughs) Edge of Tomorrow doesn't mean anything. It's true. It's, it's, but it's, emotional you're like cool you're right on the edge of tomorrow i think it's a total step up from the name of the manga all you need is kill which is like so off-putting um and i think live die repeat sets it up to be a movie that fundamentally it is not live die repeat makes it sound like it is a netflix straight to dvd like starring rom-com Yeah, like some stupid, like forgettable apologies to the genre of romantic comedy and Jason Statham for that. But (laughs) um, like it just doesn't sound like a blockbuster level movie. Edge of Tomorrow has that Tom Cruise gravitas. It has that feeling of epicness. I think to blame it on that is like ridiculous personally. And yet I would argue because I think at least right now I'm more in a live, die, repeat Mm -hmm. camp that – what is the game of this movie? Tom Cruise dies over and over and over again. That's my feeling. I don't feel that the pursuit of tomorrow is actually at the heart of what makes this movie mm. appealing. I think it is the living, <laughs> dying, and repeating. I, I understood. So, yeah, the title, All You Need Is Kill, I mean, that's a very – that that just feels a, a, a lot more fitting of the, the genre of novel that it comes from. And so, yeah, I, I, I did read, by the way – I didn't read the actual original novel. I read a manga adaptation of, but I think it was using a lot of text from and much more closely following the structure of the original novel. All You Need Is Kill. That was the title while they filmed this, I believe. And after filming, they changed the title. Doug Lyman was pushing Live, Die, Repeat. And I think they thought there was a quote from a producer about, you know, we don't want that word kill out there. People get a little touchy about the word kill. And I think they just said, and let's not have the word <laughs> die either. But I think. Because, you know, movies like Die Hard, I think, they don't succeed at all. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> maybe it was something about 2014. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe we had a particularly bad year of mass shootings. I, I can't mean, keep yeah, track of which much years every year. heinously bad and which years are just very bad. Yeah. So, so, you know, when one of those things. We you'll have a rash of, of something in the news and studios will say, mm-hmm. let's not touch that right now. Let's not touch that. So I think they must have moved away from that. But I do think that communicates the game that the movie plays. And you know what? On second viewing, I mean, I, I do really like the Edge of Tomorrow name, knowing what the movie already is and being like, that's so fitting for like the scope. But it, I, as an original IP, one of the things that Live, Die, Repeat is great at is really highlighting that the movie is bonkers. Mm-hmm. Like, it is comedic. Like, it's so absurd at points. Like, it's truly watching Tom Cruise do physical comedy. Yeah. It, which is, like, such a weird thing to 
to the part sort of like he, a weird sorry to yeah. so interrupt you rudely but i just had to say the part where he gets hit by that truck the first time i saw that that was truly the funniest thing i've ever seen when he does the role and you're like oh cool he's doing a cool tom cruise action thing and then he just gets hit by that cut in that truck and it immediately cuts to you know him waking up again that was so freaking funny I would love the supercut of him getting hit by things because I was literally picking the picturing the other time he gets hit by the truck, yeah. which is when he's trying, he's running across the battlefield and just gets totally like wily e. coyote hosed by this truck. Like, oh my God, it's a perfect, perfect fusion of like the Tom Cruise desire to hurt himself in the pursuit of stunts, plus like a cinematographer's <laughs> like understanding of how to mine that for comedy. Like, such a good pairing. And Live, Die, Repeat at least gets at the absurdity of that. Especially when you're right in the like a, a middle of a stint of Tom Cruise doing extremely self-serious action blockbusters. Like, you miss that. You miss the thing that makes this one special if no one has ever heard of this movie before. What are your guys' general thoughts on Tom Cruise? Because I feel – I had actually kind of forgotten – I mean, obviously, I hadn't forgotten he was in it. But I was almost thinking of him and Emily – blunt as a little bit more co-leads but re-watching i was like oh no this is definitely a tom cruise movie first and then an, a really really awesome emily blunt supporting role he's insane mm-hmm. um and i don't just mean in the early thousands like he got on oprah's couch and is a scientologist and maybe a bit of a creep insane or the dead behind the eyes, as we discussed in our yeah. very first episode. I guess this is full circle because we, as it, we discussed in our American Psycho up that Tom Cruise was the inspiration for Christian Bale's performance as a yuppie serial killer. Wow. I think he, the way he approaches his career, I mean, he just, he just seems like he is a little detached from reality and separately has some sort of cinematic death wish which i hadn't really thought about until you made this point a second ago emily that it's it's a vehicle for him to do what he seemingly is trying to do when he makes mission impossible movies which is get himself killed Mm -hmm. i don't i don't think i genuinely believe that's what it is but he certainly is at least artistically a thrill seeker and interested in escalating that that said i guess I mean, I guess there's Tom Cruise fans out in the world, and then there's Tom Cruise apologists. I guess maybe I'm a little bit of a Cruise apologist. For his art, not for his personal life, we should probably clarify. Yeah, no, I guess what I mean is by by continuing to say, by continuing to go throw my money at the Mission Impossible mm. franchise and, and be like, oh, man, Rogue Nation's so good, love it. Oh, yeah, Ghost Protocol, totally underrated. And, you know, like telling people, oh, you should see Ghost Protocol if you haven't, because there's this scene where he climbs up the side of the Burj Khalifa. (laughs) You know, by doing that, I guess I am implicitly saying, and his life choices are not so odious as to make this inexcusable. Do you guys remember that, like, truly insane part of the pandemic? Like, in the middle, in the height of it, where he just released that video going to see Tenet, and he was like, movies are back! Don't worry about the pandemic! We're all going to movies again! Like, that has aged so poorly. Wow. I missed that. (laughs) It's wild. I'll put it on our our, um, Twitter feed, at Roll Calling. It's a, a very strange, like, little moment time capsule. I think it's important to note that... In doing my research on the behind the scenes of this movie, I would say a full 95% of the like anecdotes that are shared essentially boil down to Tom Cruise 
is doing the most at all times. It's like Tom Cruise showed up two months early to work on the exosuits. Tom Cruise spent $100,000 to throw the cast a party and then couldn't show up because he was still filming. Tom Cruise told Emily Blunt to suck it up when the, the suits cost their weighed 90 pounds. Like, Tom Cruise threw himself off a building. Like, it's just like a, like a cavalcade of, like... He, he has his fingers in every aspect of this movie. He, like, talked about the formation of the character and the movies shifted around him. You know, like, it's, I don't, I, I don't want to, it's, it's, you absolutely cannot deny that he is magnetic. Like, both on screen, I find him insanely watchable. And clearly off screen, this man makes his own weather in terms of the movies. Like, mm-hmm. he's just like, I have I have helped you design the prototype of this suit that I will wear now. It weighs 120 pounds, and I will just do that for, you know, six months. Like, that's what I want. Yeah, and in reading the blurb about the sequel, it says, Cruz had an idea, so we're locked and loaded. Like, his relationship to his own career is not something that exists or has ever existed for that many actors. Yeah, it does yeah. feel like at this point, he is the full auteur for anything and everything that he chooses to do. And, like, you're saying, Emily, just everything bends around him. I I feel like for most of my life, I was just like neutral on Tom Cruise. Like he wasn't a person I engaged with a lot. And I have to say that over the past maybe like five years or so, I've really gone all in on while I cannot vouch for him as a human being, I am sort of very into Tom Cruise as a movie star. And I think this movie is such a great, like really since the couch jumping incident, which was like the early 2000s. I feel like he had a weird little period where people were like, well, we maybe we're just out on this guy. And he still had his Mission Impossible movies going along. But I feel like some of the later, more recent Mission Impossible movies, and then this movie in particular, are when he's sort of on the upswing again. And I think what's so smart about this movie mm-hmm. is that he comes in, this character is the most, like, the most smarmy, obnoxious, horrible person you've ever seen, which I think is how a lot of people were feeling about Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. This character immediately gets stripped of his rank fully embarrassed and then gets murdered like a (laughs) hundred times and by the end of this movie you're like actually this tom cruise guy is all right like this is such a smart thing for him to do to just like make to just like make himself in on the joke right to get everyone to laugh at him to punish himself on screen and by the end you're like yeah tom cruise action star he's earned it it's this and Tropic Thunder that I'm like, this is this is not a man who is accidentally famous. Oh. This is a man who is tactically famous and has remained famous for a reason. He's not passive in anything he does in his career. <laughs> I completely forgot he was in Tropic Thunder. There's a movie I'm not sure how – I'm not sure – I'd be nervous to go back and see how it's aged. All all yeah. raunchy comedies of the last 20 years, I'm like, ooh, what's a rewatch going to be like? Never know what you're going to step upon in the – yeah. I will just say, too, that the fact that Edge of Tomorrow is a good movie was is not something we should take lightly at all. Like, if you think about the, the production of this movie, like, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Like, everything. They brought in, like, five different writers that they cycled through. The, you know, it was supposed to be Brad Pitt. They cast Tom Cruise as, like, an afterthought when Brad Pitt declined the the shooting went way too long it was like six months because the director was like improvising as he went the sets were all ruined so they had to bring in cgi the the sheer number of people who had roles in this film and were cut is staggering like 
it's amazing to just like y- y- if you like dig through all of these actors twitters of people who have mentioned this it's like yeah i had a scene in this movie it was cut can we like can yeah. i just interject to say what that where that came from in this this moment in one of the very final shots of the movie this is when we were watching it the other night where he's re- he's blown up the omega and he's reset back to landing the helicopter in trafalgar square and he's watching on a tv where someone's saying like the mimics have somehow lost their ability and there's a sea of unnamed extras around him and emily you're like that's irene adler and i'm like what oh from sherlock and you're like yeah that's i think that's irene adler and i somewhat skeptically i was like uh is it because why she's like a she like totally gives this amazing performance and dominates that tv show why is she playing an unnamed extra in this and you then did the research and found that it's not just that they brought her to be an unnamed extra. She like had a whole arc or character that was completely axed from the movie. Yeah. There's like a female general that was tweeting on Twitter that they built her like an entire air force one set for all her scenes that just completely got cut. I think the craziest example is that after principal photography wrapped deadline, published an article that Jeremy Piven had been cast in edge of tomorrow Jeremy Piven came for pickup shots, filmed a whole arc, and managed to get cut before that movie premiered. Like, that's how <laughs> absolutely shotgunned that story was of being like, yeah, fuck, fuck it. Let's get that guy from Entourage in here. Like, he needs to film some scenes. We wrapped, but like, unveil the sets, put him back on the beach. Like, wild. A, that's the most like Jeremy Piven thing that could ever happen. You know what I mean? That just feels like he's the only actor that could happen to. And B, just as we're listing the chaos of this movie, I want to point out that they literally started filming before they had written the ending. Yeah. Which granted is not the craziest thing in blockbuster cinema. Like that kind of thing does sort of happen. But this, I think you're right that that, it speaks to a level of chaos in shooting this that it, that goes above and beyond what you can expect from even a big Hollywood production. Yeah, And you can sort of feel that when the ending does play out. Definitely. I mean, we haven't got so much yet into our critical appraisals. Should we go around real fast and say, what, what do you, like, where does this movie fall on the like shit to amazing spectrum for everyone? <laughs> That's how I like to rank all of my films. On a scale of shit to amazing, where's Edge of Tomorrow for you, Caroline? For me, I would say definitely edging towards amazing. I think it it really, its peak is its beginning. I think the first act, first, you know, 30 minutes or so are like pretty much perfect. Setting up the world, establishing the way it that does the death cuts as we establish, like the, you know, cut to black, sometimes for drama, more often for than not for comedy. All that stuff I think is brilliant. Everything on the beach I love. I think second act, I'm like, yeah, this is cruising. Maybe I'm not loving it as much as the first act, but like happy to be here. Third act, I think especially the the like final battle. There's like a final, they have to go to the Louvre and can kill the Omega. And I think that all is pretty much just like actively bad. But then it really is not that long. And then you get a good final scene. So I'm willing to, you know, I, I have thoughts on how the last act could be better but on the most part i'm willing to set that aside and just really enjoy two thumbs up for edge of tomorrow for me yeah i i feel i feel much the same no further questions really but i yeah i feel the yeah the the last third is just so 
<laughs> it almost feels like it has Game of Thrones problems where it's so muddy and CGI that you're like, what is happening here? It's so dark. Well, yeah. Phys- like literally Yes, dark. like they turned you down all the lights happening. and we're like, Terrible we're going to fly a plane through here. Just trust us. It's an audio play now. Um, I feel like there is enough hint of what it like of of good things that really just coasts me through. Like they they promise me what is essentially a heist for the last third of that movie. So I basically feel like yeah, the the first third is a Groundhog Day situational comedy. The middle third is like almost a romantic comedy. I thought about coming on this podcast and really putting a crazy take out there that this is a rom com, but like we can talk about that. I mean, they did make Palm Springs, which is basically it's this, this right movie without the mech suits. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the last third wants to be a heist, but never makes it quite happen. Um, and I am just high on the fumes of three of my favorite genres. So, like, it takes me all the way through. I'm I'm on board, as you know, have you met my lord and savior, Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> knock, knock. I think we're all in agreement here, basically. So, excellent. Consensus was the point. So, thank you, Emily, for coming on Roll Calling. It's <laughs> yeah, been it's such been a, a pleasure. pleasure. Gosh. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, Tom Cruise. No. Um, or Emily Blunt at all. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we, I, I I, agree. It's funny to, I don't know why, Caroline, so many times in the past 10 weeks, we've uttered the phrase, the third act is a little, <laughs> a little weak. Yeah. Is that just like an endemic problem? Uh, are there movies that, where the third act is the best act? Yeah, the first Avengers. And it sticks out to me so much because <laughs> it's the rare movie where that is true. You well, make a strong argument there. Can I give you guys my pitch for how I think the third act of this should go? I don't have specific plot points, but in terms of a general... I think part of the problem with this movie, just such a fun thing of laying out this very video game idea of you're just essentially dying... How ha- I mean, I associate it with like Donkey Kong. I don't play a ton of video games, so for me, my reference here is Donkey Kong. But right, you're like, okay, I'm going through minecart... And I'm I miss that jump. So when I then I have to start over, and then I go again, and now I get that jump, and now I have to go a little further and do that. Right, like that's the whole the fun of the thing is like getting a little further and further, and you're repeating a lot of things. And I think hmm. the problem with the third act, the idea of resetting it so he loses the powers, and this is his essentially last life, and he's got to live through it. Great, that makes total sense. I think the problem is that the location of the third act, this dark Louvre setting, is just somewhere we've never been before. So we lose that fun of like, ooh, we're doing another run through the video game. Mm-hmm. I think because the second act largely moves away from that beach sort of Normandy-esque scene situation that's so compelling. I think the third act should have gone back to that. And so I don't know exactly what would happen, but something that would take place there that would be different than what we had seen before, but it would be evoking that place we love. It'd be bringing in the J-Squad. I just think mm-hmm. that we needed a sense of some sort of repetition at the end, but with higher stakes because he can actually die now i think that would have been more satisfying than just very generic dark action scene in a location that we've never seen before i agree i agree that 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 particularly the first time i watched it i was like why are we here in this new place that's so much less visually dynamic to look at Mm -hmm. i saw it It literally feels a little bit like that meme of a drawing of a horse um, I, I don't know if you've <laughs> yeah. ever seen this. We're like seasons exactly one through three. And then the last thing, this is the like stick figure drawing butt end of the horse where they were yeah, like, the oh me- shit, we're out of money. We're out of time. Just get yeah, on a soundstage. We'll Emily's it describing it's like a beautiful illustration of a horse for the first half. And then, by, and then it gets worse and worse. And by the end, it's literally like a child's drawing of stick figure legs. And yeah, people will often say like Game of Thrones or just something that got bad by the end. That's so accurate. Yeah. I love that idea that it would circle back around. 
my like deep desire to have J Squad involved because I love the like heist misfit band of heroes. I'm like, you could also put that at that Heathrow air air base where the like where they're done and just put the Omega under the base, you know? Yeah. Do it like a oh, it's been, been here cool. the whole time. Like it's been right below us. We have to break into this military compound. Good thing we're all soldiers. Good thing we've been living this thousands and thousands of times. So I know this base like perfectly. Yeah. Like that to me. I, I especially, I mean, I had to pause partway through the movie and ask Ned about <laughs> the, like, mechanisms of resetting and why was Rita Verdasky, like, why was she, sorry, her last name, tell me it one more time. What is it? Is it Verdasky? It's Vertasky. Vertasky. Like, why was Rita Vertasky, like, a super soldier now? Was it, like, uh, I just didn't quite understand the time travel looping. So it was especially wild to be like, it's out in the wilds of Germany, potentially? And then they're like, that was a bait and switch. It knew we were coming. It's in France. And you're like, these two locations mean nothing to me. Yeah. Why do either of these twists when nothing means anything? Like, just take me to where, take me to the final boss in video game. You know, like, take me there. While we're pitching things, I say bring Dr. Carter along for the ride because he's a blast. Oh, yeah. Have him. Yeah. He has to be tracking something on a device that only he can read. He needs a minute. He only needs a minute. Let him hack the base. Yeah. This is perfect. We and, it. and don't kill off Nance off screen. Because I was like, oh, I liked her. She's just a, she's a member of J-Squad. I was like, what happened to her? Is she, wait, is she dead? What happened? Right. No, you're so, I mean, and especially watching this at home, I'm like, I think Emily Blunt just died, but it's so dark I genuinely can't tell what's happening in this <laughs> at movie anymore. the very anymore. end, the alpha, I guess, kills her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then it's all happy at the end. Like, again... If you look, if you're, like, I was kind of watching the clock to try to track. It really is like a 15 minute sequence at most. And I yeah. do think that the final shot, the final sequence yes. and the final shot of this movie, I think is great. Yeah. Him smi- him coming up to Rita again, smiling, a little reset. Who oh. knows where things go from here? But like a wonderful sense, a little cocky optimism from Tom Cruise. It's like so chef's kiss, like truly to end it to like, and that's why, oh man, you have to see this movie, and it's it sucks that word of mouth didn't get it there in time for the theatrical run, because it's like, t- to know that that sense of humor they chose to end on that is so purposeful, to be like, it's just like a half smirk from Cruise, and then, like, crash cut into the credits. Oh, man. That is just such a great ending, and it totally buoys you through 15 minutes of darkness. You're like, yeah, again, again. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, something about the structure of having to, like, go kill an Omega actually makes it, I don't know, that is not quite as satisfying. I mean, I guess the Omegas, the, the, the mimics are tied into the time loop, and so it's key that you have to go, like, kill them to stop the time loop or something like that. I will say, so the the manga of All You Need Is Kill that I read is definitely different in tone, and some of that has to do a lot with, like, sort of genre expectations and they're all all the characters are much younger and a lot of it is just about you know KG KG Kiria's like obsessive desire to become a better fighter just because he feels like the world has dealt him this like horrible deal but Rita also has the ability to loop she never loses it Mm. and when she she's you get some parts of it that are from her perspective and she's been waiting to see if anyone will ever get the loop the same way she did and when he comes up and tells her that he has, she like cries. It's this emotional moment. And the the climax of that book, and I understand why they didn't want to go with this, is this kind of Romeo and Juliet 
thing where she reveals they actually dispatch the the enemies like quite handily and then they restart the loop and they can't figure out why or he can't figure out why and she's like as long as because they're both infected with the tachyon particles is what it is in the book she's like as long as keiji Korea is alive rita can never escape from the loop and as long as rita is alive keiji can never escape from the loop so we must fight and one of us must die so Ugh. they've both learned how to use their big battle axes you know he copied her He's been copying her through his loops, like learning how to fight the way she does. And they're using their giant axes, which I would have loved. I can understand why you can't go all the way there in a, a an American action film. I, I'm happy with the sword. I'll settle for the sword, but I do like the axe. But they have to fight, and in the end, he sort of kills her, and then they have their little like death scene together, and he has to go on and fight without her, which was probably not the right thing to do for this movie, which I agree brought in a lot more comedy. But it also had to do this, like, external, we've got to go figure out, we've got to go outsmart the mimics that I don't know is somewhat somewhat satisfying because it kind of takes it outside of the two of them, whereas the, the book is a lot more just about, like, they have this bond because they're the only people who have ever experienced this thing together, which is also what Palm Springs is about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to show the hand, Ned loves Palm Springs, which... You know, I makes do. sense. I also, I also love it. We'll get but to yeah. Palm Springs on this podcast. I, I promise. Oh you hell that. yeah! <laughs> Our Andy Samberg nice. series. I mean, that would just be a very different movie. Like, like that would be the the Oscar nominated version of this. You know what I mean? That would be the like the deep introspective nihilistic version. Mm-hmm. And this is the might get an Oscar nomination for sound mixing. You know, like that's just the difference. A different tone for sure. It could. It, it should get an Oscar for visual effects. I think they're great. They are great. Yeah. It's a good, yeah. especially the beach stuff. Yeah, dude. I mean, this is my last fun fact. Like, as you can see, I'm a deep obsessive researcher. But that that was shot on Harry Potter sets. A lot mm. of this movie was done on because it's a Warner Brothers um, film. They just had all of these Harry Potter sets mothballed, and they were like, "Cool, can you make it look like?" dunkirk and like most of it is green screen like so much of the beach is is cgi and outside of the last the ending of it i would argue that you're not hugely conscious of being like wow everything in this is fake like a lot of it feels very like lived in i think it's very smart to make the suits all practical too because you're just like yeah the success the suits look great the suits look great, and I like how so much of it's at daytime. I always love a daytime action scene. I think that's part of the reason why the ending feels so comparably not interesting. It's like yeah. when you – and again, that's why I love the end of the first Avengers movie. It's like, yeah, this is a daytime battle. It's not, ooh, let's make it dark so the CGI doesn't have to be as good. It's like, no, we're we're kind of bragging about how good this looks because there's actual light to see it with. Because <laughs> you can see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we've sort of referenced the whole – Groundhog Day subgenre, which, as far as I know, Groundhog Day created wholesale. I mean, I I don't know if there's like a short story precedent for this or something. Yeah, I kind of feel like at least popularized to the to the degree that it is. I thought, you know what? That's another movie I was thinking about. Like now, that title, it's like yeah, Groundhog Day. That's like a tight that movie that meant nothing. That was the t- the title of that movie was an obscure holiday. No one th- it'd be like naming a movie <laughs> Arbor Day, and now and then everyone's like that's the most brilliant title ever. It's like no titles seem brilliant in retrospect because we put meaning onto them, but you know. The title's not everything is all I'm saying. 
So yeah. Groundhog Day's uh, movies in that genre, what some might call Groundhog Day knockoffs, but I'm going to reject that. Edge of Tomorrow, Happy Death Day, Source Code, Palm Springs... Am I forgetting? Any, there was, a, there was like a teen YA one that just came out this year that I forget what it was called. So that's not helpful reference, but that one. All those <laughs> ones that I've just named, I think, are such deeply underrated films. I think they're all better than the way they are sort of discussed in the mainstream. And Groundhog Day, I do not think is overrated. I think Groundhog Day is just rated because I think Groundhog Day is genius. Um it is such an inherently satisfying concept to watch played out. Just watching him go through, like, navigating the best way to deal with Bill Paxton's Sergeant Farrell and, like, being introduced to J-Squad for the third time and then the fourth time and trying to figure out the best way to deal with that and then just, like, going through everything on the everything on the battlefield and even the... The part when Emily Blunt is saying, like, again, 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 and he keeps getting shot in the head for, like, breaking himself in the training center. <laughs> a montage that reminded me of the Miranda Priestly throws her coat on the desk montage. Yeah, good connection. Strata. Just you and you've got a hard-ass boss who's just pushing you to your limits. <laughs> but watching them play that concept out is so very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get to do Happy well, should we? someday, which I love. I was going to say, should we should we kind of switch to talking about Emily Blunt? Because I feel like she is really key to selling. Like you have Tom Cruise as sort of the funny one and obviously the one who's actually going through the journey. But I feel like Emily Blunt is very key to selling sort of some of the emotions of the time loop situation, even if she's sort of the less showy character. Because there, there's this whole fascinating subtext where she has gone through the situation he's gone through before. So we can kind of read into her all of these like complex interior motivations where she understands what he's going through. She weirdly understands what she means to him because we learned that she had a person that was essentially her Emily Blunt when she was going through the situation. And I feel like that all, the fact that she's been through it before, A, it's just brilliant because it means you don't have that annoying situation where somebody has to explain the concept of a time loop when you're like, we, the audience, already understand. We don't want to watch characters have to catch up to this. That's always the most annoying part of a time yeah. loop movie. So it's great that they can skip that. And then I also feel like that it adds such an interesting like emotional level, the fact that Rita has already been through this herself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it is she – of the characters we've discussed so far, I'm I'm – tying it in right now to Mary Poppins, but I also think we can see some of this with Agent Kate Macer in Sicario, where she is somebody who keeps her sort of personal background really close to her chest. I mean, that is a key part of this character is her sort of unwillingness to let private cage into her inner emotional life. I mean, she's very like, we can, we have to plan this thing together. We need to work on this together, but she's extremely uh, withholding of her personal information. And yet he always has this advantage on her of having been through the loops. And he's saying, you told me your middle name is Peyton. She says, that's not my middle name. And then tells him later on in the final loop that her middle name is Rose final loop maybe some other loop i don't i don't recall 
But it is interesting because she does give us all of that emotional background context that you're talking about, Caroline. But she does it in a way where this character has become so hardened. And in fact, that is a key part of her character that she has, like, we understand that she's kind of like been through hell and back. And it's it's actually something unique in all of that Groundhog Day verse, little, the Groundhog Day cinematic universe collection of films that I talk about. She's the only person that I can think of off the top of my head in those movies where we get a glimpse of what it is like to live through the time loop and then get out of the time loop and then see what your life is like after that. Because almost all those other movies, unless I'm forgetting one, basically goes through the end of a time loop with the main character and then they get out of it or don't and then the credits roll. And she is playing a very interesting character being someone who did a who lived a day over at least 300 times and then now is out of that and sort of dealing with the psychological ramifications of that and like wearing that sort of insane mental torture on herself yeah there was a line that i loved the way emily blunt delivered it when they're in the minivan together and she's telling tom cruise about um What's his name? Richmond? What's his name? Hendrix. Hendrix, I think. Hendrix. Uh, yeah, when she's when she's driving, they're driving in the minivan together and um, Rita's telling Cage about Hendrix for the first time. And he says, like, I'm so sorry. And Emily Blunt has this, like, totally understated delivery of the line, it's just war or something like that. It's just mm-hmm. war. And it it, like, cracks open something so interesting about her character of, like, this – warrior who is a weapon who has been made into like a living weapon and is good at it and has sort of like lost so much and now has this chance to win the war and is just like consumed by the war has been turned into something else by this war and it's like this total unfolding of this character in a really nice way for a character that doesn't emote purposefully um I love that those moments of like real like vulnerability are contrasted by the way they shoot her in this film, which is like some sort of fucking god. Like <laughs> the 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 camera just like gives her so much power, especially in the first act where you're like you're introduced to her in this like insane contortionist yoga pose coming out of it at first in slow motion and then in fast speed Mm -hmm. and the way the camera like catches up to her up her body to be like when she's like suiting up and stuff you don't see her face at first and you don't hear her talk for like the first half hour of this film her first line is come find me when you wake up i'm pretty sure it's the first time you really hear her talk and so she's shot as this like deity of war and it's so interesting throughout the film to just like sort of watch the pieces crack off of her, you know, and and with very little exposition to do it in. Yeah, I think rewatching this movie today, A, I think we've had somewhat m- a bigger group of female characters like this, right? Like I feel like this is this sort of strong but in a non-sexualized way sort of character has thankfully become slightly more common since this movie came out. And I also think Emily Blunt has done more action-y type films. Like, the Quiet Place films sort of fit into that. Sicario, certainly. So, 
in a way it's I it like took me a second to put my mindset back to 2014 and remember like how revolutionary those things felt then. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like there was a lot of discussion when this movie came out of how this was a very different kind of female character than we've gotten recently. This felt way more like a throwback to, you know, Ripley and Aliens or Sarah Connor and Terminator, these like really cool 80s heroines we hadn't seen in a long time. And it was this real moment of like, whoa, we didn't know Emily Blunt could do this. Like she had kind of been rom-com or like British period piece or sort of character study. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, and now she trained and she's super ripped and she's an action star. And that felt like so revolutionary at the time. And it's interesting now to go back and watch this. I'm like, oh, yeah, now this sort of just feels like Emily Blunt. But I feel like at the time it felt like such a shift for her. Yeah. It's also I'm also thinking about the fact of how. And it's a reason why she's such a natural fit for a Marvel movie, which we've discussed a little bit, because Marvel movies tend to take these quality, mid-famous, likable actors and sort of put them into action star mode. It's a very different mode. It's a very different model from when you mentioned the 80s. I mean, I feel like our action stars were our action stars. Like they did action movie after action movie after action movie. Mm. And you didn't so much have that crossover. I mean, I guess there's... You know, you get someone like Kurt Russell did a bunch of action movies, but he also had this whole series of rom-coms. But I can't think of a ton of people who do that that crossover thing, which she does totally natural here. And I also hadn't thought until you mentioned that this is this is a pre-Furiosa world. We just are yeah, seven that's years who ago. I was thinking of too. Yeah, so we're just seven years earlier than this present moment in terms of, uh, you know, women being women getting to play these sorts of roles. Now it also falls into, it also is sort of a milestone in this conversation of the the quote unquote strong female character. This is again a moment where, because I hadn't planned on it, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm thinking of a sort of a seminal article that I actually couldn't tell you who wrote it or for what publication or when, but it was an essay about how the quote unquote strong female character who is, you know, gun wielding and uh, like emotionally stoic and sort of cast in the in the model of a traditional male dominated action role is actually not a one stop fix to gender inequality in film. And actually, you need all different shades of complicated characters. But it's a step on the way. And it is cool to see her get to take this on. I mean, it's certainly cool for her career, if nothing else. I was just going to say the one thing that we haven't really talked touched on in her career was that she was the first person they offered Black Widow to, or at least the main person they were thinking of. And she had this huge turning point where she wanted to do it, but she was contracted to do Gulliver's Travels, that like Jack Black comedy romp adventure that was not well received. Yeah. And I think it's really only recent. I think it's been on the press cycle for A Quiet Place too, where she's really been like, yeah, I basically didn't want to do Gulliver's Travels. I wanted to do Black Widow, but I couldn't. Um, so that's like a really fascinating like alternate universe. You know, like I feel like her career would have been different. She would have been folded into that Marvel mode where you do get famous, but almost you're equally famous for your character, which I think is the difference yeah. between you know Chris Evans and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger was just, like you were saying, famous action star. 
as himself. Chris Evans, it's like he's famous for being Captain America. And Captain America is more famous than Chris Evans in a way. And I think it's interesting yeah. that Emily yes. Blunt, in, in sort of inadvertently avoiding being Black Widow, has n- now become a person who it's – she doesn't have a character that's more famous than she is. She is herself the star and – Maybe that's limited how famous she can be in certain ways, but in other ways, maybe it's given her sort of more ownership over her own career than, I don't know. I mean, ScarJo certainly does other movies too, but but it does feel like there's a certain segment of people that are going to always think of her as, as Black Widow first and foremost. Yeah. I wonder if it makes a difference when you get famous in your career too. I mean, I just think of like, um, wow, Chris Hemsworth of being like an unknown has been cast to play Thor and how challenging I mean don't cry for Chris Argentina but like <laughs> um how challenging it must be to try and step outside of a role that you became famous for on like a billion dollar scale and that at least Emily Blunt gets to continue to reinvent herself without the shadow of being arguably the most famous female avenger you know that's yeah. that's a big ask and I will say I I actually I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did. Like, I think I really like Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. I think Emily Blunt's Black Widow would have... I mean, she's... I love... Obviously, I love Emily Blunt. We've loved all doing the series about her, and she's great as an action star in Edge of Tomorrow. But I feel like she maybe would have leaned into the... She's, like... She's quippy and funny. Even in this movie where she's pretty serious, like, there is a certain lightness to her as well that I think is different than what... I, okay, here's what I'll say. I think Emily Blunt is better at comedy than Scarlett Johansson, but Scarlett Johansson not being great as comedy is kind of an asset to Black Widow, and I sort of like that about the MCU. So I'm sort of glad things worked out the way that they did. Yeah, that like like faint awkwardness is like so good for a Russian sleeper agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that this movie, which in its in its final incarnation probably many people would not draw any would not be aware that this had its roots in manga or or Japanese fiction but just this idea of a like stone cold badass woman with a gigantic sword it does feel like it's not it's not a uh it's not a revolutionary idea in that genre i mean i'm no expert there but it's kind of cool i i do somewhat wish they leaned even more into that i mean you get an interesting product by pulling all of these elements to create this sort of cross-cultural blend. Although the the end result is definitely a movie that doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't, in other, in other ways, it doesn't feel cross-cultural. I mean, it's a very, it feels like a very, European. a very European, very American. I did have the thought during this movie, I was like, this would be a very easy film for a Republican to love. Sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just I was looking at like an Emily Blunt on her press docket for this movie, just like constantly talking about how feminist this movie is. And I'm like, is it really feminist to love war? Like, is that like a core like competency for like women in film to be like, I'm a feminist because I shoot this gun big time. It's just such an interesting aspect. Yeah. I mean, 2014 for as recent as it was was also a very different time. Like, it is kind yeah. of, I, do, I think about this in terms of where where things were when I started my writing career, which was right around, like, 2013, versus now. And it sort of felt like if you wrote anything about feminism, like, ooh, that was very, like, pushing the boundaries. And it was the era where, we were, like, we would ask, celeb- like, young celebrity women if they considered themselves feminists. And it was controversial how they answered. And Do you remember that? You know, for better or for worse, we're certainly at a place where all that stuff is – 
much more well-known, arguably commodified, and like you're saying, Emily, like maybe not as thought through as it should be, but there has certainly been a very big cultural shift just in the past, you know, seven or eight years or, or so. Yeah, and I pray yeah. to God that seven or eight years from now we'll be talking about now and saying, boy, we hadn't figured a lot of things out yeah. yet. But <laughs> but in now that it's 2028, <laughs> things are much, much better. Everything's perfect. <laughs> Everything's perfect. And then the mimics attack. Oh God. Um, can we say that I don't, and by we, I say I, I mean I, what am I trying to say? Can I say I really don't like the kiss that's in this movie? Yeah, it's... <laughs> oh. That's a real moment of this didn't need to be in there. I concur. Emily? I'm so glad you brought that up. Of just like, yeah, I, yeah, it's such an interesting, do they have chemistry? Are they extremely good performers who have platonic chemistry or do they have romantic chemistry? It is an interesting question of being like, you really could make it two war buddies just like trying to like get through something together. And like the deepness of that intimate bond is maybe more interesting, especially in like when you're not both living a time loop. It's kind of messed up. I mean, it's good that she kisses him because it's like sure. she's known him for 12 hours. Right. You like. Yeah, they haven't even done the full. They haven't even done the because they haven't gone to the beach yet no. in that loop. No, they skipped the beach. It definitely is a kiss of we're both about to die. So like, what the hell? I think that's kind of the vibe they're going through for. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. But does it need to be there? Also, Tom Cruise is a full 20 years older than she is. Isn't that wild? And it's so clear. Like, it, to me, it is so clear. Even through the lens of like, you're so used to seeing an older man. I'm yeah. like, Emily Blunt's skin is flawless. She has <laughs> nary a pore. Like, this woman was just birthed. And like, Tom Cruise has been around. Like, you can tell. Like, you just see the difference and you're like, wow, that is a weird one. Now I say all of that, and I don't hate the kiss. Oh, sorry if that's controversial. Good, I want some debate. I love kissing in movies. I love two good actors. I'm not mad about it because it's so like <laughs> it's like not passionate in a way. Like there's sure. no stakes to it. You really, I think what you're talking about, Caroline, is so right. It's like either we're all gonna die. Or we're all going to die. Like, there's no alternate <laughs> option. So it's not like this is a kiss with a lot of meaning as much as it is just like, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. Like, it's, fuck it. Whatever. Yeah, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we're all pumped up full of adrenaline. You know what I mean? Like, there's something about that that is thrilling in and of itself without, as long as you soft focus your eyes and don't think deeply about it. <laughs> sure. It's funny because in the movie Rogue One, has a similar situation and there is no kiss in that movie and I really wanted there to be. So I can't even say that I am against a kiss in this kind of situation. I think for what I think in this movie I was like, oh, it's cool that they don't feel like they're leaning into the romantic nature of this relationship. And I was like, oh, well, I guess they did. I was I would have been okay with it just being ambiguous. And you could write your own narrative of he comes in and smiles and who knows where things are going here and write your own ending. I think I would have been more satisfied with that. A way stronger choice, and it does feel like it's succumbed to 2014 of being like, if you're going to put a man and a woman in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> do I mean? Boy. Come on. Girl. End of movie. Kiss. Put it in there. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to lose the Fault in Our Stars contingent. They're going to go watch the Cancer Kids kiss <laughs> wow. if you don't put a kiss in this goddamn action Which movie. They did. You know what? And they were, yeah. But you know what? They did the kiss and the movie didn't work. So maybe they should have, maybe that was yep. the thing that really held it back. They would have gotten hundreds more at the box office if they. <laughs> 
I'd cut the kiss. Keep it named Edge of Tomorrow. Cut that one scene and you've made yourself a perfect movie. You're sort a of, billion dollars. You're sort of suggesting a world, <laughs> Caroline, where people came out of the first weekend. They're like, I don't know. It felt there was a perfunctory romantic connection at the end. And that irritated me. So I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's 100% what happened. They asked for a refund. <laughs> they got their money back. I think a more effective moment that sort of veers towards, if not romantic, then like emotional is that scene in the barn. Where they're oh. debating whether to go to the helicopter and he's getting her coffee. And this is both a great character moment and a great narrative moment because it all of a sudden reveals that this situation that we've been assuming and that Emily Blunt has been assuming is the first time they've gone through it. Actually, they've gone through it a lot. And in this case, Tom Cruise is just lying about it because he knows that there's no that they can't get to the next step without her dying. So he's just kind of trying to stall for time. And I love the way the movie like wrong foots you where you think you're like, okay, I get the structure. Like we'll see him die. We'll see him wake up. We'll see him progress. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he's going through something and you're like, oh, he's done this a lot before. Oh, now it seems like there was a cut where he died, but we didn't quite see it. And now there's new information. Like it really keeps you on your toes in that way. And that scene in particular with the coffee is such a great mix. And it reveals the power imbalance there, too, of her being like, what a sweet moment that I'm having, not realizing that he's had this – he has had this sweet moment enough times to memorize the coffee order and memorize the beats of all of this. And it it feels – like, I feel like there's a teen movie where he, like, reads her diary or, like, like lives through this moment like, oh, it's um, it's about time. Speaking of time traveling yeah, yeah, yeah. movies. Yeah, oh, totally. Where you're like, that movie – Father, if you're listening to this, this is my father, Jeff's, one of his favorite movies of all time. He loves it so deeply. Um, it's this it's movie, also Father's Day, Gleason. as we're recording this episode. So exactly. Shout out to dads. Shout out to all the dads. Um, and he, um, he he loves this movie, and it's this movie about Donald Gleason and Rachel McAdams falling in love. Donald Gleason has the ability to time travel, and so he basically can reset the timeline to like redo his actions over and over again. And in some ways, you see – in this moment in Edge of Tomorrow, the dark side of time travel through the lens of rom-com, where you're like, dang, you can absolutely gaslit this woman into loving you because you now, you've memorized everything that is vulnerable and intimate about her, and she has absolutely no defenses. In some ways, Tom Cruise is the mimic here of just being like, resetting until I learn all your weaknesses, until I have you. Dang. Emily, that was such a good so, like, read. I do think... <laughs> I just think like a kiss there would be so much more complicated than I think this movie is ready to do of being like, sure. there is a deep power imbalance here of Tom Cruise being like, I know what to do to make you kiss me. And Emily Blunt being like, this is like a weird electric moment that I've never had before. It's yeah. like so interesting. I do think they do a really good job. The writing in that little section of the movie, I hadn't clocked it so much the first time because I was probably the first time watching it, I was like, "Where? what happened to the beach? But it is really interesting because they also explore, unlike About Time, which I think actually uh, does not sufficiently take the main character to task for his um, abuses of time power in sort of entrapping this woman, you could say. Uh, in that moment, I think Tom Cruise, he, he sort of explores this dynamic where what he's trying to do is save a life and uh, and save humanity and move on. And he is sort of like, when he gives her the keys, he's like, he kind of cops to the fact that he is inadvertently falling for her, but he knows he can't acknowledge it because it is a one-sided thing. And, and the fact that he 
sort of admits what he has been keeping from her and sort of keeping from himself, which is like, my sense of the mission is now being compromised by the fact that I don't want to see you die and I can't go forward mm-hmm. with a loop where you have died. And that's really interesting. I think that's, again, the kind of thing where I'm like, it's too bad that the final challenge has to do with something outside of their relationship. When they're in the middle part of the movie, that is the really interesting stuff we're getting into. I mean, the movie transitions from him trying to figure out how to deal with a loop to them, to it complicating with them having this relationship that's getting complicated because of there being in a loop, which transitions to a gun battle. Blurry midnight <laughs> uh, uh, Louvre heist. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that is a that is a that is a really solid scene, and you know, and it is it is interesting to see with how much she doesn't want to give away and how how sort of independent she is. It's interesting to see her play this character who, like you know, trains alone. She goes out with a squad, but she fights alone. She clearly is like she feels like a person all alone. And then she finds herself dependent because of the loop on this schlemiel with no combat training. That's a great character setup for her for her arc. You know, it isn't just that mm-hmm. he he's someone who doesn't know how to fight who has to learn it from this like from the full metal bitch. But she's this like person who has been so hardened and essentially like learned through loops that she she is an island. She cannot depend on anyone else and she could not connect anyone else and then this random guy gets the loop power and she's like now we have to work together but it is a real screenwriting puzzle that i think they explore interestingly there interestingly there but maybe don't exactly nail in the end that they must always be his relationship to her is constantly developing while her relationship to him is constantly going back to zero but I think that's why it's so helpful that she has been through the loop before because it's like, yeah. okay, she lived through this. And so what she can remember, what she experienced with Hendrix, whatever that may be, like the movie doesn't spell it out, but that automatically makes her so much more empathetic to what Tom Cruise is going for. And I think it weirdly does even the power balance yeah. because she can she can just like – it's also like it sucks, right? Like there's parts of this movie where I'm like – I cannot imagine a worse situation. Like, Seriously. you have to just every day, not just like you're doing the same thing, but like you have to, I mean, I love Bill Paxton. I would happily listen to Bill Paxton monologue at me all day. But in the reality of the situation, you just have to interact with him every day in that exact same way. Yes. And like, it would be exhausting. And you could, you know that Emily Blunt is sympathetic to that because she lived through it. And it, it does sort of even out even them out more than in something like Groundhog Day, which I also think does a good job of in its own way dealing with the power imbalance. But that movie is does not have that extra layer to it that Edge of Tomorrow does with her having gone through it before. Mm-hmm. Totally agreed. Yeah, you don't have to watch the like bewildered woman like get explained how a time loop works. Like she knows more than he does right off the bat about what is happening to him. She is, and it's the, also like, fun. When at some point then he starts to learn more. That's another mm-hmm. fun s- shift where when he first comes, she and the sci- the scientist guy sort of know everything. And by the end, he's like, okay, yes, you already know this. Like, you already told me this a million times. And he's yes. kind of getting them to hurry up. Like, there's so many fun little shifts that happen throughout this movie. This also just makes me think of how, like, I play a video game. Like, like just thinking about how many times Tom Cruise hit the X button instead of the A button. Like, even though he knows what to do, he, like, miscounted the steps. And he's like, Fuck me. 
I made to start it all over. All over. There is the no save point on this except for the start of this day. Like, this bitch has to, like, do... He has to survive, like, a Dunkirk equivalent. But before he even gets there, he's got to, like, roll under the tires of, like, a truck. Yeah. He's got to convince a very scary woman to believe him again. Like, uh, over and over and over again. Like, when does this bitch sleep? Never. When does he yeah. when does he pee? I, I mean my constant he question. Never sleeps. Actually, no. He never sleeps and he it's never the pees. Next morning. Never mind. Because because yeah, the invasion of Verdun is the, the invasion it's not Verdun. The invasion happens the day after he wakes up. So there is a night. Like a two day span. But even so Okay. You're not sleeping well. So. <laughs> yeah. No. Surely not. You gotta use that time. I do really appreciate that they aren't stingy with the loops. Like the fact that uh, I I had this thought when he rolls under because they sometimes will do a kind of a jump forward and they'll show they'll take you to what's clearly his like, you know, 18th loop trying something and he's now fully competent at it. But you never know if you're going to get that or the one where he gets run over by the wheels of the car, which I agree is just so funny and shocking and and it's like, well, we go back. We got to do this one part again. That part also messed with my head. Can I just say because I was <laughs> this is not the point I was trying to make, but but I say to Emily, the fact that after he gets hit by the car, you see Bill Paxton be like, "What in the world was he thinking?" <laughs> it's so goddamn funny that part that they stay with that for a minute to just let that process what everyone else is experiencing. <laughs> yes, but you know what that means? The worlds go on. Yeah. If that's it's not that just well, or I was wondering if he would. I had that thought too, but then I was like, maybe he survives a minute. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe he didn't die instantly. He's still it's dying. more like he, he was still in the process of dying, and he heard him say that. I okay. mean, if you want to write around it, that would be. I think better. they're mostly writing to the joke. It's. But. I th- I agree. I think they're writing the joke. That actually has to be the explanation, though, because if not, it's this horrifying world where, like, in three hundred worlds, like Rita just shoots the guy in the head and then is like, uh. Then goes to the beach and dies goes there. Goes to the beach yeah. and dies, yeah. Wow. That was, that was big, Caroline. Thank you for saving us from that nihilism. Because I, yes. I just remember when Ned like pops up and is like, oh my god, there's no escape for 99.9% of these worlds. Much better if Tom Cruise is bleeding out on the pavement and just like overhearing this yeah, before yeah, he Yeah, that's thank resets. you, Caroline. <laughs> yeah. As a person who grew up on Star Trek and then spent a lot of my 20s watching Doctor Who, I am here for any and all of your time travel questions. This Incredible. is very much baked into my DNA. Incredible. Yeah, very much my genre. What else is on y'all's mind where Edge of Tomorrow is concerned? Give us a sequel. Ugh. It seems like they will. Live, and die, maybe. repeat, and repeat. It seemed a little bit like one of those things that maybe it's just going to be in production forever but never actually happen. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, the, the most recent thing was Emily Blunt being like, it's not going to happen in terms yeah. of like... <laughs> Post, post-pandemic, there's no way we're going to get the budget for this. It's so hard to – They she did the classic irreconcilable differences of like – you know when, when celebrity couples divorce and you're like irreconcilable differences is the like blanket statement? Mm. She said, it's just so hard to get everyone's schedules to align, which is like – I feel like the like shorthand for like this movie's not happening, but I can't say that publicly. I wonder, do you think she wants to do this movie again? It kind of seems like Cruz was a nightmare (laughs) to work with. Huh. I wonder if – I think maybe the – I I read some LA Times article about Doug Liman who directed this, who he was the one that was reading to me more as 
real all over the place. His process is like, I think admittedly by his own admission, very all over the place. And that's a big part of the reason there was so much chaos on filming this. I mean, Tom Cruise is certainly his own bag of, you know, Zanu worshiping <laughs> person. Night nightmare is a strong word. It was just this narrative. I mean, it was both. It was both like, like a sort of an absence of clear leadership from Doug Lyman and Cruise as the auteur having this like, this like gung ho, let's make an action movie idea. But his desire to throw himself off buildings, I think, does not excuse necessarily like expecting that of everyone. I mean, it was. It was the little, it was this vibe that was seeping through the, the haha fun. We had a fun time making this movie. It was such a challenge, trivia facts. Like Tom Cruise doing all his own stunts and Emily Blunt doing her own stunts. And when she came back for reshoots and she was pregnant, she declined to do her own stunts. And the phrasing on the IMDb trivia was, this confused Cruise as she had done mm. all her stunts the first time. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to read... I, I, I feel like maybe I'm not crazy to read between the lines here. Like, how did he express his quote unquote confusion to her? Because she then revealed to him something that seemingly nobody, almost nobody else, except for John Krasinski and a friend of hers knew at the time, which is that she was pregnant. And it's just, and you know, her putting on the battle suit, it's, she said she cried when she first put on the battle suit because it was so heavy. And he told her to stop being a wuss about it. Those little anecdotes could be taken a number of different ways. There are friends sure. of mine with whom I would be – there are friends of mine who could say those kinds of things to me and I would not be bothered by it. And there are other people I've worked with who could say those kinds of things to me and I would be bothered by it because it would be uh, And I would suck it up more. for the press tour. Yes, and I would – yes. It, it, you know, to, to, to refer one more time to Mad Max Fury Road, the sort of strained euphemisms that – Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron would use about challenging each other made it seem like they like literally were at each other's throats mm -hmm. on that movie. And I just, you never know exactly what the truth of it was. So I am honestly conjecturing without any clear evidence to suggest that she had a bad time on this. I, I mean, we should also point out in addition to maybe reportedly working on an Edge of Tomorrow sequel together, Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise are also reportedly making the first movie ever shot in outer space, which Doug Lyman is supposed to direct, write, and produce, and Tom Cruise is set to star in and produce. They are supposedly going to fly to the International Space Station and film a movie there. I mean, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Tom Cruise. But I, I, I'm not sure that that area of filmmaking is maybe where Emily <laughs> Blunt is looking to go. That final frontier. To, to space. Literally or figuratively. To literal space, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is that but movie, it also... Is that movie, just real fast, is that a SpaceX movie? Yes, they're... Well, I'm literally reading this from Wikipedia, but it does say that they are supposed to go to the International Space Station as part of the SpaceX Axiom Space One mission. Wow. So... Who knows? There you go. But I also think your question of would Emily Blunt want to do a sequel speaks to, like, what is Emily Blunt's career and where, where does it go from here? Which I think is, is like an, is an interesting question. Like I, she's got Jungle Cruise coming up next, which hasn't come up yet as we have are recording this, but that has the potential to steer her more in the sort of comedic Dwayne Johnson action blockbuster direction. She's got the quiet place credentials, but then she's, 
you know, I, for me, it feels like a next project for somebody of her level would be kind of going after that more Oscar-y kind of thing. Like, clearly she's got the talent and the respect. Like, I was actually kind of surprised to see she'd never even been nominated before. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if maybe that's a direction she could go into. But, like, who knows? I feel like she, I I have come away from this miniseries loving Emily Blunt, respecting Emily Blunt, but also, in a way, having many questions about Emily Blunt. And I look forward to having them answered. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, she feels a little bit – yeah, I, I was talking to my dad, happy Father's Day, Jeff, um, about Emily Blunt today. And he was just like – he loves her, but he was like, I would love to see her play a villain. And, like, I would love mm. to watch Emily Blunt play, like, a complicated woman even. Like, I feel like my fear for her is that she's going to jungle cruise her career and it's going to become yeah. this, like, PG, like, technicolor dream of Nomeo and Juliet and Gulliver's travel and the, like, sort of, like, easy money that comes with that and that comes with her image as, like, devoted partner to John Krasinski with their, like, adorable, tousle-headed, like, hybrid America-London family. And I just think that is, I mean, totally within her bounds. But, yeah, I would love to watch her do a character with more complexity. I think Mm -hmm. that one of the things she has proven she can do over and over again is make her face do all sorts of reactions to, like, zany antics, whether they're aliens or men or horrible bosses. Like, she is so rarely in a true leading pole position. And even I can't think of a movie where she is also playing someone who is extremely, like, multifaceted or damaged or, 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 yeah, villainous in any way. I think it's part of why she has this sort of like sterling reputation in Hollywood because you're right, Caroline, you were saying you can't really ascribe her characters to her. And if you do, they're all just like Mary Poppins. They're all like sweet, occasionally Mm -hmm. sassy, but not really like super complicated in that way. I would love for her feminism to sort of evolve from that like single note character to encompass roles that have more nuance to them. She did that girl on the train movie in 2016, yes, which so was right. maybe a stab at that, but did not hit at all. And so I don't know if that scared her off from doing that or, you know, maybe she's just biding her time. Like, clearly she's been very busy, so maybe that kind of stuff is in the works for her. But it does feel like for as beloved as she is and how many great movies she's done, it feels like we have maybe not seen her full potential yet, which is kind of exciting, mm-hmm. I guess, that there's more to come. Yeah. There's room to grow. Sadly, she may have to go work with David O. Russell, whom the Academy yeah. loves so much, and then yeah. she can get her Oscar. No, I don't know. I don't know that she needs to do that. Um, but I mean, yeah, there is a certain thing where it's you need to be in the right kind of prestige thing that's prestige, but doesn't seem desperately prestige like that. There's a real there's an interesting balancing act when it comes to sort of how how you do that Oscar thing. And it's interesting. I mean, in a way, it's interesting that she hasn't been on that train she was the girl on the train but she hasn't been on the oscar train as much as somebody like amy adams feels like she is locked into sort of that mode and yeah who knows oh yeah which is so interesting because yeah amy adams loves like a, a damaged addicted woman mother bad mom like it does feel like yeah like emily blunt could really transition that into sort of the dark side of that just like get a pill addiction be in a history biopic, like, in your 50s housewife dress. Like, we could really make this happen for her. 
And then I guess the other question is, is that the sort of thing that only really happens on TV now? And is that going to be, is she going to be the next sort of like HBO, you know, miniseries, prestige, mini limited series thing? Because I feel like that's the direction increasingly a lot of actors, but maybe women in particular are going to. And I mean, she really has not done any TV. Like she is a really. No. Sort of old fashioned in that way. And that she is just a movie star. And there's not a lot of crossover and there's not a lot of, okay, I'm not quite finding my way in movies. So I'm going to do this television thing which has become so much the norm now so yeah kind of an old-fashioned career in that way i guess she's got to be careful messing around with dwayne johnson because she will end up in a fast and furious (laughs) movie oh my god a villain role in fast and furious can we just i personally i would love to see her win an oscar get accolades whatever i would much rather watch her as like a Charlize theron like villainess in a Fast and the Furious movie. It's just like, she's so comedic. Let her turn it up to 11 and do the like, can't be exaggerated performance. She almost was sort of that in that Huntsman Winter's War movie, which was both a sequel and a prequel to that Kristen Stewart Huntsman Snow White movie. She was basically playing Elsa from Frozen against Charlize Theron as also sort of an Elsa. They were both kind of like anti-hero villains, but sisters, but good this is a movie I saw and don't remember strongly, but that it's kind of her entering that more like campy villainess territory. Carol, what I'm hearing from you is that like Emily Blunt, master Swiftian technician of Hollywood that she is, is like, she's going to listen to this podcast, obviously, and be like, you guys, like, I tried this. Like, I did all of these things you're describing. Like, I I did my Oscar, like, my movie, and then I tried The Huntsman, and I just, you know, it didn't happen for me. Like, I just feel like, yeah, this this woman, maybe we're not, I, and again, getting back to my point of like, she hides her mistakes so well, her, yeah. her missteps. Where I'm like, who is talking about the like misfire of Emily Blunt's career, Huntsman Winter's soldier, like whatever it is, like. Winter's war, but close yeah. enough. <laughs> like who is, who is like a deep knock against Emily Blunt for doing Gulliver's Travels? Like, it's just crazy that those aren't yeah, sticking to her. Yeah, you're so right. She really does come out of those. And part of it is she's very personable, right? Like she is good at selling this stuff. She's good at laughing at herself and oppressed to her situation. And she doesn't, I'm sure she takes her career incredibly seriously, but she does not come across as a person that does that, especially in comparison to the seriousness of Christian Bale, who we talked about in our last series and and how reluctant he was to do press. Like Emily Blunt is, she's good at navigating that side of things. And maybe that's sort of why she's able to hide these weird sort of flops that she's had throughout her career Hmm. any other emily blunt performances that we want to shout out while we while we lower the curtain on our our second miniseries i have a couple well one of them emily just our emily just reminded me of because i watched half of nomeo and juliet on tv one day and i thought it was really (laughs) cute and i've been meaning to watch the second half so I can recommend the first half of Nomi and Juliet. But actually, the the movie I really want to shout out is um, Your Sister's Sister, which is this Lynn Shelton sort of um, almost like mumblecore dramedy from 2011 that I just think is it's such a it's just a small little character drama. Like, I don't want my love of it to almost oversell it to people like go in, you know, not it's not changing the game in any way. But I think it's such a lovely depiction of in adult sister relationship in a way that you just don't often see and it it is a there's a romance sort of like almost like a weird love triangle situation there too but i think that first and foremost to me it's just like such a lovely depiction of adult sisterhood 
And yeah, I just really adore your sister, sister. Check it out. Well, two thumbs up. While keeping the same caveat about not wanting to oversell it, mine was also going to be Your Sister's Sister, which was directed by Lynn Shelton and is sort of this adult indie comedy. Uh, there's sort of three people in a cabin. Um, oh, I t- you recommended it to me, Caroline. I loved it. I watched oh, it good. during this time. I, I just adored it. And uh, I, I, compared to some of the blockbusters we've been talking about, it's a movie with a budget of $120,000. It's essentially just three actors in a single cabin on the jaw-droppingly gorgeous San Juan Islands in Washington. And it's very improvisational. And as you say, I mean, uh, what, uh, the guy in it is the Duplass, one of the Duplass yeah, brothers. Mark, I think. And it just, yeah, besides the my my intense frustration of Emily Blunt being in love with this like big dopey guy and him not knowing how to process it and I'm like you you schmuck <laughs> she's right there she loves Yeah imagine you. if your problem was like wow it's so hard for me that Emily Blunt is in love with me <laughs> but uh but I thought it was a really a really great movie um so that's two Oh I'm so glad you liked it. Oh yeah I loved it. I really loved it. It's and it's a really it's Honestly, like when we were thinking about what kind of performances we'd like to see more from her, I'd like to see more like that where she's she honestly she's just playing a sort of a down to earth, charming but flawed person in a improvisational acting style and she gets a lot of screen time. And I just would love to see her get that time and time again in movies. The other one I that I watched specifically for this podcast, and if we want to talk about how Emily Blunt can really escape the stink of a flop, um, last year in 2020, she had this movie come out called Wild Mountain Time. That is like a romantic comedy that, I mean, I think it has like a 6% on Rotten Tomato, like really lambasted in every way as one of the worst. Okay, I lied. It has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, but very not well received at all. And I kind of liked it. <laughs> I went in thinking, oh, I'll just laugh at this dumb movie, and then I kind of ended up liking it. It's John Patrick Shanley, who wrote uh, Moonstruck and Joe vs. the Volcano. I think he he's a writer and director who just creates weird comedic worlds where no one acts like a human being. Like, that's, that's kind of, like, what is good about it. And I think a lo- people were not on the wavelength for that, which, fair enough. But I think Emily Blunt is actually great at just playing this. Again, it's another movie where Emily Blunt is in love with someone, and they that's their main problem is that Emily Blunt is in love with them. <laughs> so that I guess Hollywood thinks that's a relatable problem for a male character to have. But she's great at just being this despondent <laughs> Irish farmer who is just like, I will make this man love me no matter what it takes in a very strange and deadpan way. And I don't know, maybe no one but me will ever like this movie, but I <laughs> maybe not two thumbs up for that one, but I'll give it one thumb up. I had a good time. I would never ever want to encourage the listeners of this podcast (laughs) to direct vitriol towards a woman on the internet. That being said, everyone should go roast Caroline Sita on Twitter for this take. It is the wildest take I have ever heard. Um, Insane. That's what I'm here for. I love it. Um, I can't top that. That is the recommendation you should watch. I agree. You should go watch that movie. And so then you can DM me and <laughs> pick a side on if that is a psycho opinion to have or not about this movie. Um, mine is also, I mean, unfortunately. Look, sometimes I have to have my my uh, hot takes coming out. I don't want them, but th- that's the way my brain works sometimes. Hell yeah, dude! We don't choose our we don't choose our spiciest takes. They're they're no. we're born into them. They choose yeah. us. Yeah. They choose us, yeah. 
Um, speaking of spicy takes, I like the Adjustment Bureau. What movie, mm-hmm. you might ask? Yes, the Adjustment Bureau with Matt hats. Damon and Emily Blunt. Um, and hats. And, and the hats. stupidest That's what fucking I remember fedoras. <laughs> hats, hats, hats. <laughs> truly, the fact that they're like, there's a team of time-traveling white men who control the world, but they do it through the power of fedoras. Like, it was a different time that we could sell that movie as a good idea. But... Um, what I will say that is extremely powerful is a single scene between Matt Damon and Emily Blunt in a bathroom where you watch, like, the most pure crystalline, like, chemistry between two heavyweight actors. It is a masterclass where Emily Blunt has, like, almost nothing to do and is so good. Do I encourage you to watch all of the Adjustment Bureau? I don't know. It's really in the the vein of, like, a Wicker Park or like a butterfly effect, you'll probably want it on while you're chopping vegetables. You can absolutely roast me because I'm a deep fedora hater, and yet here I am, hat in hand, <laughs> proverbially, telling you to watch this movie. Um, but that's my that's my my uh, pick. I have seen it. Don't remember anything about it, but you know what? I'm gonna endorse that wreck. Hell yeah, hats, baby. I liked Looper. That's another one. Yeah, she's good in Looper. It's a pretty small she, part. Way too small a, part for us to make it one of ours, but she's good. It was also a little bit of the start of, of a little bit more of a hard edge for her that I think probably led into mm. Edge of Tomorrow. She holds a gun. Mm-hmm. This was the that was the start of her, her yeah. period of movies where she holds a gun. She also chops wood, <laughs> including A Quiet Place. I think you're referring to those as feminist movies. Woman yeah. holding the gun. <laughs> it's one of her first feminist films. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um. My last request is, do either of you know why Emily Blunt is a special thanks on the Joseph Gordon-Levitt's movie, Don John, about a man struggling with pornography addiction? Mm -hmm. Why is Mm -hmm. she – she has a credit on that movie as, like, a very special thanks to Emily Blunt. What did she do? Was this before or after? I'm loving this question. Was this before or after Looper? Are you on IMDb right now? It's a great question. I can can check. Um, Looper was 2012. 2012. John John was 2013. There you go. Maybe she like read the script on set or something. Yeah, and they notes. just made Looper together. Interesting. Gave JGL some notes that he may or may not have taken. Well, maybe she was his dialect coach. <laughs> I was gonna say pornography consultant, but you know what? A mystery. A mystery. Emily Blunt, come on the podcast and explain yourself. We only <laughs> yes. want to interview set the you about straight. your special credit on Don John and nothing else about your career. <laughs> Explain yourself. We ask to a person who, based on her media training, will, like Mary Poppins, never explain mm. anything. Stan, we love. So I think with that, we are going to wave an extremely fond goodbye to Emily Blunt for now. Until she goes oh, and follows her. our career advice. I will as well. Until she goes, follows our career advice and makes all these movies that we're suggesting where she make. And then... Can't wait to get that special thanks. Very special thanks to Roll Calling for the career advice. And then we'll do those five movies. You know, her Fast and Furious film, her mm-hmm. her next her Oscar sister's, winner. Your sister's sister's sister. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, all, the, all that. Um. So I think it might be time now to look to the future. Caroline, do do you kind of want to tell us? Because I am exhausted from hosting these five episodes. I am ready to let you take over. uh, And I'll just I'll just sit back and put my feet up. So do you want to do you want to tell us what's uh, what we're looking at in the coming weeks? 
Yeah, well, you know, we did two, sort of coincidentally, we just happened to do two British actors in a row for our first two. So we thought, okay, for the third one, let's really mix it up. Let's do another British actor. <laughs> He's slightly younger. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Arguably a different generation. Maybe not. Anyway, we know him. We love him. He's Dev Patel. Um, he's my pick for our next series. I'm so excited to talk about him. He's got a new movie coming out this summer called The Green Knight. So we're going to be leading up to that and, and digging into his early career. And we got some, we got an exciting guest lined up for our first episode with him. But there's a twist here. Because before we dig into Dev, we were just going to take a little break. We were just going to have a little nice little week off. You know, we did two miniseries. We, we, host, we each had a chance at hosting. We were a little tired. Then I, as a joke, texted Ned and said, haha, wouldn't it be funny if we did a special bonus episode on In the Heights? And Ned said, haha, what if we just weren't joking and we actually did it? So actually next week we're doing a special, I'm going to call it a 4th of July bonus episode because there's fireworks in In the Heights. So we're doing a special 4th of July In the Heights bonus episode with one of our friends. We're very excited about that. And then after that, we're going to start Dev Patel and we're starting his miniseries, with Slumdog Millionaire. So so lots on the docket for you, whether you like musicals. And yeah, we hope you'll you'll stick around for our, our next adventure. We, at least we get one American story in there before we go back to another <laughs> British actor. That's right. And potentially, potentially more Lin-Manuel Miranda impressions. But honestly, probably not. Uh, honestly, probably yes. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll see what happens. My you know, it's podcasting. Anything can happen. So that is going to wrap us up for today. I want to... Uh, extend a very deep roll calling thank you, Emily, for coming on our podcast. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, thanks of you. for it's being our a... first guest. Yeah. Other than oh my gosh, what a dream! Our first adult guest. I know. I, I, you know what? I am glad to uh, try and carry the extremely, extremely big torch that I've been passed by um, two very, very smart, savvy guests that came before me to talk about Mary Poppins. So if only I can fill their shoes, I will feel extremely blessed. Oh, it's been very fun. It's been very fun chatting with you. Do yeah, you have anything love... you want to plug? Oh, um, do I? <laughs> Where can people follow you? Yeah, Customarily, you can follow me. Customarily, what podcast host asks a guest. I love it. I wish that we hadn't just come out of a global pandemic so I had more exciting things to tell you. I um, you were going to say so you could follow me in real, like, oh my the God. street. <laughs> please don't follow me home, global pandemic or no. Please follow me on social media only uh, at Miss Marceau. Um, and I don't know what else. Um, you can play Mortal Kombat uh, is out now. Um, you can watch executive producer dick wolf's chicago med and watch me throw some scalpels around um you have a great short open. film i do um a short film a that i star in yeah. that? um swipe up vivian is now out on amuleto so you can watch that oh yeah and watch that it's awesome it's great oh thank you and then i have a feature hopefully coming out later this year so you can look forward to that um so follow her you're miss marso yep that instagram and twitter so follow instagram, her there for yeah for updates on yeah. all of her projects. Oh, a lot She's of updates. Me trying to bake, me getting obsessed with <laughs> poker, um, me yelling at Ned. It's just a it's a grab bag of everything you know and love about humanity. So get psyched. Yeah. And stay tuned. And in just a few years, we'll be doing 
Emily Marceau's roll calling cycle. Wow, 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 wow. Do I, I get was top just billing? about to make the same joke. <laughs> we'll have you on as a guest to talk about your own career, Emily. I would actually <laughs> love if you could get um, my best friend Emily Blunt on so that then oh, she can Oh, it's such a good really... call. What were we thinking? Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll yeah, obviously have you. Emily Blunt on for the yeah. Emily Marceau So series. she can come oh, on yeah. and like conjecture about what your experience was yeah, like on the film. Why don't I have my movie. Oscar yet? Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Oh, yeah, she's so good on the press tours. And she really, <laughs> like, she really sells every movie she's in. Jesus, who has been reading my diary? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. As two, uh, as two high-achieving, talented actor women with a uh, sort of a schlubby, uh, <laughs> floppy-haired <laughs> significant other filmmaker guy. Wow. Uh, friendship over with John Krasinski. Beef has started. Somewhere <laughs> across the pond, John Krasinski's like, that motherfucker, schlubby? <laughs> I'll kill him. I mean, it sounds like we are starting both a, like a love-hate relationship with the blunt Krasinski household. It sounds like what you guys are doing now. And I'm happy to watch from the sidelines as that unfolds. Yeah, keep an eye on our, our frenemies there. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling or email us RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back next week to talk In the Heights. Until then. Come find me when you wake up.